Okay. Parshat Vayigash. I'm going to tell you a difficult story. This occurred at the beginning of the second intifada. The beginning of the second intifada occurred and started um, Matzay, actually Matzay Tzamgidali, right after Rosh Hashanah. I don't think it really started over Rosh Hashanah. Um, this was uh, the year 2000, about seven years after the Oslo Accords. The Palestinian Authority had been founded. We, as part of those accords, agreed to help them set up a Palestinian police force. You can imagine my opinion of the Palestinian police force today, but I'm not going to go there. According to the Oslo Accords, um, we were supposed to provide them with 5,000 guns throughout Yudavashamran. By the year 2000, there were 200,000 plus guns floating around Yudavashamran. Before the Oslo Accords, you know, in order for terrorists to mobilize, you know, it was very difficult for them to do. They usually worked either as units of one or two, maybe three. By the year 2000, in the open, they were sort of quasi-Palestinian policemen. They could already train and mobilize in battalion strength. Things were much more serious. And without getting into all the details of how the Second Intifada started, if you're curious, that's a Thursday night Q&A. So, um, so all hell broke loose. And this time, they had guns. The First Intifada was rocks, stones, burning tires, the occasional Molotov cocktail. This is machine guns. This is anti-tank weapons. This is much more serious. There were five residents of the Gush that were murdered on the roads during those few months where it was really intense on the road that I drive every day. Baruch Cohen, there were a bunch of... Anyway, it was Matzei Tzam Gedalia. And, uh, you know, obviously on Rosh Hashanah, things were haywire. We're all listening to the news. It's about 1 o'clock in the morning, okay? And um, my phone rings. And I get a call. It's my battalion commander. And he says, Guyasno, we've been drafted. Now, I had never experienced this before. Every time I did Miluim, like, I was in a war when I was in the regular army. You don't get drafted, you're in. And then, sometimes I had difficult reserve duties. But to go to reserve duty, you get a, you get a notice. And it says, on such and such a date, you're going to go. And they have to give it to you 40 days in advance. And you know when you're going and you plan for it. Here it's 1 o'clock in the morning. And there was a special Knesset session of a, the defense committee, whatever. And they're allowed to sign a Tzav Shmona, which is a special order that can draft people without such notice. So our unit was drafted. So I said to him, wow. I said, when do we have to report? He said, now. I said, well, how long will we be in for? He said, I have no idea. Okay, now this is 1 o'clock in the morning. By 3.30 in the morning, 97% of our unit were already in positions. It is impossible to describe the shock of going from a regular civilian day where you have projects and there are groups coming and you're going to teach and the next day you have a class or whatever, to all of a sudden you're in the army. And I, got, uh, I ended up being drafted by six weeks. It was absolutely without question the single worst milieu I ever did. And what made it the most difficult was the cop, the line that we were given, was basically in Bethlehem. We, we were part of a special unit that was founded in order to have a battle-worthy unit in the Gush to respond to things like this. I never thought that we would need to do it, but okay. And so our Kav was like 10 minutes from my home. And most of the guys in our unit lived in the area. And we made a decision that we were going to let guys, unless they were the Ready Alert Squad for that particular eight-hour period, we were going to let them sleep at home. Right? This is a really responsible unit. They're serious soldiers. And we said, we're willing to let guys sleep at home, but if we see guys aren't showing up on time for patrols and stuff like that, then we're going to cancel it. We're all going to sleep in the base. 
most of the guys lived closer to where our patrols were than the actual base we would have slept in. So this made sense, and it worked. Throughout that millennium, I don't think a single guy in my unit wasn't on time because they all wanted to be able to stay at home. What made this especially difficult was, you know, and, and we didn't realize what a serious millennium this would be. We thought, you know, we'll do patrols, whatever. The next thing you know, gun battles and shootings, and you're, you know, involved in, like, you know, stopping terrorists at 3 in the afternoon, and at 6 you can pop home to see your kids. It was a bizarre millennium. Very, very difficult. Usually you're in the middle of them, you're away. You tell your wife everything is okay. Here they're seeing it. Anyway, it was uh, third, fourth day of this whole experience. We still don't get how serious this is. We think it's like a week. In 1996, there was something called the Tunnel Riots. They opened up the Kotel Tunnels, which I hope is about will be able to take you to this year if things calm down. Um, and the Arabs used it as an excuse, and they started riots all over the country and shooting and whatever. They're taking the the Dome of the Rock, they're taking the Temple Mount, whatever, it took a week to calm things down. So we figured that's what's going on here, I'll give it a week, and you know, third, maybe fourth day of this, I'm in a Chapak, in a Chadar Pikut Kidmi, that's where your Jeep is like the roving command post, I was the company commander, and we get a call over the radio that shots were fired out in the Dagan. They heard shots. Now, usually in Miluim, when you're in the, the first Intifada, you heard shots fired, by the time you got there, there was no one there. And there was sometimes a standing order, you know, when you get there, if you don't see anybody, shoot a few bullets in the air. People should think you're responding. That order never made much sense to me, but that was the order, that's what we were doing. So we would get there, we would give all clear, somebody would shoot three shots in the air, and everybody would think that there was a whatever. And I was expecting, that's what we would get out there, you know. So we got called yesterday, I planned that all week. Did you like that, right? So those are firecrackers, don't worry, right? So somebody's having a wedding across the valley. So, so... So we get to the northern edge of Efrat, to the hill of Dagan, which is today Miyushav, but then it was caravans. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I just figured it was like, uh, normally now, at the northern tip of Efrat, which overlooks Beit Lechem, we had realized that that would be the most sensitive point, you know, in our area. It was opposite uh, Chirbet Alia, Artas, sort of suburbs of Beit Lechem. Um, there were, at the time, terrorist cells operating in Beit Lechem. And we thought if there was a problem, it would probably come from there. And so we had let the, the, the army know that we, you know, we just needed reinforcements. And they sent us like a serious unit of guys from under Sakravit. And this is like a serious battle where the unit of infantry, whatever. And we positioned them on that hilltop overlooking Bethlehem in the northern tip of Ephraim. 20 guys, usually eight on patrol. The previous afternoon, I had gotten out there because this isn't part of my unit. It's a unit, Mr. Pachle, were attached to our unit. And I wanted to see who they were, whatever. We did a maneuver. I had them do a maneuver with me. Um, you know, we're going to say that there's an attack, and what do you do, and what do we do, etc. We had done this all, and they knew exactly what to do. I get out there. Now, we had decided there was a road that led up to this position, but the road kind of went around the position, and it was sort of opposite Bethlehem. So we said if there's ever an incident... We're not going to take our Jeep all the way up to the top because then the Jeep will be, uh, what's the word, chasuf, uh, open, exposed to Betachem. It's not a smart thing to do. We didn't have bulletproof Jeeps. So we said, if that happens, we'll park the Jeep at the bottom and we'll run up the hill. It's an extra minute. And that's what we did, you know, being responsible. We left one guy with the Jeep. We were running up the hill. It's a, you know, not a heavily populated hill. There's like 10 caravans of Jews in what is today the Dagan uh, and my kids actually live right where this happened, funnily enough, but I didn't know that that would be. I get to the top of the hill, and as I'm running up the hill, I'm kind of like, you know, like a like walking slow jog. I notice something interesting. Now, if we were in Lebanon or, or, or Aza, I would have figured this out right away. 
But we're like five minutes from my house. Like I passed the playground where my kids play on the way. It was the most bizarre experience. And I put my foot down and I noticed that some dust get kicks up when my foot puts down. But the dust isn't exactly where my boot is. I thought, that's interesting. And then it happens again. And it takes me a second, because again, I'm, I'm just, you're just not thinking this could happen here. It's your neighborhood. They're shooting at us. And I suddenly realize we're being fired at. So I hit the guy who's with me, and we do whatever you're supposed to do. Hit the dirt, run three seconds, hit the dirt. We get to the top of the hill, and these Hundasai guys are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. They're arrayed out in a semicircle. The heavy machine gun is set up exactly where it's supposed to be. The guys are there. Only one problem. And I can see, like, what's going on. We're being fired at. There's terrorists across the valley in, in the second floor. Do you like that? It's all sound effects, right? They're, they're second in the second floor. Okay, of this school in Khirbat Alia, and they're shooting at us. And the only problem is, the Handasa guys, relax, it's firecrackers, right? The only problem is, the Handasa guys, okay, are not firing back. So I drop down next to the, the lieutenant, he's like, has one bar, he's a second lieutenant, he's clearly, you know, and I figured, okay, maybe he's, you know, he's done so many fire, live fire exercise, never actually been in a real situation being shot at. So he's like waiting for the order to shoot, but you don't do that in a real situation. So I hit him on the helmet, and you yell at the why are you not firing? Right? You can see the... So he looks at me and he gives me the binoculars. And I'm about to look through the binoculars, and I don't need to look through the binoculars, because I look across the valley, I suddenly realize why he's not firing. Because there's like 20 little Arab kids who are running around where these two terrorists are. Now you have to understand, this is a school building. I know this school. We actually did a couple projects with this kfar. We've done them with Vadinis. You know, this school is not open at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. There's not supposed to be kids there at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So I realized exactly what's going on here. They brought a whole bunch of school kids. And they're firing at us. And their goal is not to hit us. Their goal is to get us to fire at them. Because if we kill a few school children, now I don't know that this is an intifada that's going to last three, four years. I think it's a week. And I suddenly realized if we open fire and we kill some of these children, I'm going to be on CNN that night and it's going to start a war. Who knows? So I don't know what to do. Now, normally, in a normal situation, no problem. You do what's called kitzur tvachim. You, you take part of your unit, you know, they cover you, you move closer, and then you do what you have to do. We're not allowed to do that. Because if you know anything about the Oslo Accords, there was Area A, Area B, Area C. We're in Area C. This is Area A. We're not allowed to go into Area A. It's part of the Oslo Accord. We're allowed to return fire, we're not allowed to go into Area A, because that's Palestinian Authority. We're not really waiting for the Palestinian Authority police to come and stop these terrorists, because they're Palestinian Authority policemen. So now I'm stuck, I don't know what to do, I don't want to kill children. So until I finally get somebody in the horn, I said, we need a couple snipers here. We don't have snipers as part of our unit. It takes about 40 minutes, right, for the snipers to get there. You could imagine, we're lying on a hill, they're firing at us, and we can't really return fire. Not a healthy or pleasant situation, right? I later find out that my family is hearing these gunshots. They're sitting at home, and they realize something serious is going on because there's a whole bunch of shooting, and they know the difference already between firecrackers and shots, and they understand me. I'm the company commander. Like, I'm probably there. And, and later I'll discover that my kid is, one of my kids had, you know, he seriously struggled with this. I get home uh, uh, the next night, I managed to get home for an hour to put them to sleep, and he puts his arms around me, and he won't let me go. And I finally say to him, you know, listen, whichever kid, you know, I need to like I have to go. 
He looks at me and says, Abba, taftiach li shalatamut. Promise me you're not going to die. How do you answer a question like that to an eight-year-old kid? So we're sitting on the cell. They finally send two snipers. Okay? And they had a gun. It's called a barat. A barat is a... Uh, it's, a, it's a large caliber gun that's used specifically for riot control because you can shoot 1,500, 1,800 yards and you can hit a boulder and it'll explode the boulder. And if you do this like 20 meters away from a riot, it'll slow the riot down, stop. That's usually what they use it for. But those are the only guns they had. So they set up their guns and they're waiting for me to give the order. But there's kids running around there. And you can look through the binoculars and you can see these kids. And I'm thinking to myself, like, if one of these guys hit him, finally one of the guys, they were Milunikim, they were reserve duty, they're much older than I was back then. And, and they look at me and say, Motek, ten pkuda, like, give the order. And I'm trying to get the battalion commander on the radio, because I don't think that a company commander should be giving an order like that. I can't get them. So finally you give the order. Never mind what a Barat bullet, an 05 caliber bullet, does to the head of a terrorist. What does it do to the kid who's sitting three meters away? who, through no fault of his own, looks at this terrorist as a hero. And can you ever make peace with that child? Every once in a while I go back to that moment. I have to give an order. And if you mess up and give the wrong order, somebody gets killed. And it's not like when you're in combat, you have time to think about this order. So what do you do? There's a, there's a Mishnah that says, ish, where there is no person, there's no guy, no man. Try to be that man. Right? That is this week's Parsha. This week's Parsha is that moment. In this week's Parsha, Yehuda the brother becomes Yehuda the leader. I would venture to say he becomes Yehuda the Melech. Now, this is an interesting question. Who should be the leader? Who should be the leader? Reuven. Reuven is the firstborn. What happens to Reuven? Pachas Kamayim. Reuven is a sad story. Right? There are two other leaders. Who are the two other leaders? Obviously all the brothers are leaders, Shimon, Levi, but for the purposes. If you had to pick the two other brothers who have leadership roles, who are they? Yosef and? Yehuda. Yosef and Yehuda. Now Yosef will become Mishnah Lamelech. It's an interesting thing. So why isn't Yosef Malchus? Why don't, why don't royalty, why doesn't royalty, the lineage of King David, why doesn't it come from Yosef? There is a concept of Mashiach, Ben Yosef, Ephraim, Menashe, but Ephraim and Menashe, the two tribes, even though it's a double portion, they disappear. They are exiled by the Assyrians. According to secular dates, in the year 722 before the Common Era, and there's nothing left of them. Now I know the Bnei Menashe are coming back. That's another story for Thursday night later if you want. But Yehuda. Yehuda is the one who becomes the leader. We are called Yehudim. How does that happen? What goes wrong with, with Ruvain? So in order to understand this, we have to look both at the story of Ruvain and the story of Yehuda. So if you go back to Vayeshev, okay? And by the way, I'd like to say, tonight is the, the yurtzeit of the brother of a student here, uh, who was a student here a number of years ago, a very special boy. And his brother left the world on the night of Asar B'tevet. 
And uh, I managed to reach out to him today to make sure it was the Yorzeit. He said it was, so I'm going to dedicate uh, this year in his memory. His name appropriately was Yehuda Aaron ben Svishragi. And uh, when a person dies that young, you realize the potential that was lost. So this whole shear is about the potential that was fulfilled. And it should be an ilui neshama for him and a comfort to his family. So, so what happens to... What happens to Ruvain? I'm just going to say this quickly, because less is more. Ruvain, Ruvain is the best of them. If you look at the story of the sale of Yosef, he's the one who wants to do the right thing. Right? What, is, what does Ruvain say? Right? It says, V'yafshitu et Yosef et kutanto, right? They strip him. V'yashlichoto abora. And they throw him into this pit. And they sit down to eat lunch. Can you imagine? I mentioned this in one of the shirim this week. Later on, it's Ruvain who will say to the brothers, I knew we messed up. We didn't even listen to his cries. That means they heard him crying. And what are they doing while he's crying in agony in a pit? They're eating lunch. This is the dream. This is the Jewish people. We're supposed to be a light. We're supposed to be sensitive. We're supposed to care. If, if the Jews can be eating lunch while their brother is crying in a pit, then the Jewish dream has taken a wrong turn. And it will take 200 years in Egypt to beat that out of us before we're ready to make the Jewish people. But Ruvain doesn't seem to be a part of that. He's not there when they eat lunch. Ruvain hears, this is Perak Lam and Zayin, Pasuk Chaf, when the brothers say, let's kill him, and throw him in a pit. Ruvain saves them and says, we shouldn't kill him. Don't, right? Right? He does this, he suggests that he be thrown in a pit so they won't kill him right away, so that he can save him. By the way, which halacha in Hilchot Deot that we discussed is exactly what Ruven does. What does he do? He says, let's take a pause. We're all angry, let's slow it down, throw him in a pit, think about it, have lunch. There's a validity to this, so Ruven is great. There's, there's ten of them, how's he gonna, nine of them. What goes wrong? So I want to make a suggestion. Never mind where Ruvain goes. That's an interesting discussion. He goes back. In the meantime, they sold him. Or he was taken out of the pit. That's an interesting discussion. Yosef isn't there. He tears his clothes. So far, so good. We should say Ruvain the Tzadik. He's the only one who resists. He... he he doesn't get sucked into just because everybody else is doing it. This, this should be the leader. So I wonder if hidden in this pasuk is what's wrong with Ruvain. Let me read this again. You tell me what the problem is here. So he returns to his brothers and he says, The boy isn't there. What am I going to do now? What's the problem here? What's the root of all character flaw? 
too focused on me. He doesn't even name Yosef. It's all about me. It's not about Yosef. The definition of a leader is that it's not about you. As soon as a politician makes it about himself, he's no longer a leader. Sadly, we've become more aware of this phenomenon in recent days in politics. Right? And it doesn't matter what Ruvain does. If Ruvain's more worried about Ruvain, then Ruvain's not a leader. And that's why nobody ever listens to Ruvain. So what happens with Yehuda? Yehuda's worse. Right? Yehuda is the one who sells him. So what happens in this week's part? What happens in last week's part? In, sorry, in Parshat Vayeshev. Right? So right after the story, I mentioned this also in one of the shurim, so I'll just point it out for a second. Right? After the story of the sale of Yosef, you've got to imagine that Yehuda is the one who really messed this up. So what does it say? He goes down. Right? If you could sell your brother into slavery, you're going down. He meets a guy named Chira. Not a very good name, but I'm not going to go there right now. He's an Adulami. What does that mean? That he's not Jewish. He's a Canaanite. Right? So he's doing business with Chira. And he sees the daughter of a man named Shua. He marries her. It's the first intermarriage. What's missing here? Think about the difference between the way Yehuda meets his wife and the way Yaakov met his. Right? He sees Rachel. She's named. Yehuda. It never mentions who she is. Who is she interested in? She's interested Bat Ishknani, Ushmo Shua. We know the name of the father. And Rashi says, why do we say Nishtatefimo? You went to business with him. Right? He's less interested in the woman than he is in the father. She's not there. It's exactly what happened with Ruvain. If you can throw your brother in a pit, then he's just not there for you. It's interesting, there's a magnificent Ramban. When Yosef shows up, because he's looking to find his brothers, it says, right? They see him from a distance and they plot to kill him. The Ramban says, when you see someone from a distance, it's easy to hate them. You have to get close to a person. And then you discover there's something to love. Right? Yosef, by the way, is the antithesis. Yosef, Yaakov sends him to see, find the good. Find what's good about your brothers. Yosef goes, perhaps on a journey, to try to make amends. Okay. So we mention this. He has a son named Er, which is a language of curse. We talked about that, Onanut. Right? Tamar, the oldest son, the oldest son dies, he's done evil. Tamar, his betrothed, has no children. She's supposed to take the next brother. He, Onan, he doesn't want to sleep with her. He spills the seed in vain. He dies too. Yehuda says, this is not good. I don't want to lose my third son. So Tamar has to wait. She's just not there. That's the root here. Eventually, Yehuda, right? Yehuda's not thinking about Tamar. He's thinking about the sheep, which is the modern day version, the ancient version of stocks, bonds, business. 
So she takes off the clothing of her widowness. And she covers herself up in a scarf. Now, if you see a woman and she's covered up in a scarf, then that means she's not there. She's an object. She's not a person. Sheila has grown up and she hasn't been betrothed to him. He sees her, but he doesn't see her. She covered her face. This is the problem. How could you sell your brother? You can only sell your brother if your brother isn't really there. You know? How? And it's not for us to judge, but it's definitely for us to learn. How could hundreds of thousands of American Jews do absolutely nothing when they were murdering six million Jews in Poland? They just weren't there. They just weren't there. Right? How could we allow 500,000 Syrians to be murdered over the last six years? And at least to Israel's credit, they, an unbelievable mitzvah to help these people and give them medical care. Are they human beings or not? Are they there? That's what makes us Jewish. So he sleeps with her, right? And makes a deal with her. It's a business transaction. Sorry. What should you give me? Like, you think I'm a zonah? Fine. So then let's do business. There's no love here. He's not seeing her as a partner. There's just lust. He's seeing her as an object. So to get an object, you give an object. It's a business deal. So, what pledge can you give me? Right? These are the, the symbols of who Yehud is. I'm not going to go there right now. And then eventually... He sends this Gdi Zim, this goat that he's promised. That's a whole discussion of what the Gdi is and how it relates to, to, to Yom Kippur, but I'm not going to go there now. His colleague. Now, what is a Rea? It's one of the first places in the Torah you find Rea. Who's his Rea and Adulamite? Yehuda is so far. It's not accidental that I see this in the same story because if you can't even see a woman as a person, if your brother isn't there, then, then what's left of you is a Jew. When does this all change? So now Tamar becomes pregnant. Right? She's whored. She's supposed to be betrothed to Shela and she's pregnant and she hasn't been given to Shela. So she's an adulteress. Now in the culture of that day, what do you do with an adulteress? You execute her. I'm not going to get into what that is. This, by the way, this particular moment is not a Jewish moment. This is a Canaanite moment. But you could debate that. Take her out and let her be burnt. Now, putting aside, there's a lot of drush on what this really means. I'm not going to go there right now. What is she not? She's not even present. There's no dialogue, there's no discussion, there's no did you do. She's an object. She's causing a problem. Burn her, let's get rid of it. What does burning something signify? Destruction, right? Mave, Eish, is one of the primary forms of Nezek, right? It's the way to destroy something. She's not there. When does this change, 
right? He mutzeit, she was found. She sends back the mashkon, the ptilim, the mateh, the chotemet, that belonged to Yuda, that was the pledge that proved that she owes her the gate, goat. And she says, to whomever this belongs, I am pregnant. Now think about this moment. Yehuda is the son of Yaakov. I mean, he's a personality. Point to Chazal, he's a judge. He's the judge in this case. What is the simplest thing for him to do? She's not there. Who's going to believe her? She's a whore. The words hakerna, does that make you think of anything? Hakerna? Pardon? When they bring Yosef's bloody coat back to Yaakov, same language. They send the ketonet. That doesn't even fit there. It's the same language. She sends the signal, the signs. We found this bloody coat. Do you recognize this? Now comes Tamar and says to Yehuda, do you recognize this? It is impossible to imagine that Yehuda, when he hears those words, isn't struck in his gut. Shem is turning the circle around. And in this moment, everything changes. She is more righteous than I. He does not continue to have relations with her, even though he slept with her already, because she's betrothed to his wife. That the whole discussion is an amazing discussion for another time. Yehuda recognizes everything he's done wrong, and that leads us to Parashat Vayigash. So what happens in Parashat Vayigash? This is one of the most powerful words in the entire Torah. Binyamin is accused of theft. Yosef wants to take him into captivity. It's all over. Yehuda has promised Yaakov he will bring him back. And what does Yehuda do? We talked about this in Shia this week, in the Rambam, right? Or whatever, in Arevus. Miyad... And we said that Arevus means not I am me and you are you. Right? The Gemara in Mako says that the two, the two tribes cannot split a city except for Yehuda and Binyamin because Yehuda and Binyamin becomes one. Yehuda in this moment doesn't say I'll take his place. Yehuda says I am him. It's exactly the opposite of what he didn't do for Yosef. He's fixed the entire equation. In this moment, Yehuda becomes Malach. Yehuda basically says, this is a very dangerous thing to do. He's giving himself over to, 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 to servitude. He's going to become a slave. It's, it's basically a death sentence. But Yehuda so... And who is Binyamin to Yehuda? He's the, beloved, the new beloved son of Yaakov. He's the son of Rachel. Yehuda and Binyamin are not close. At least they weren't in that moment. It doesn't appear. And Yehuda doesn't know what's really going on. That's a debatable topic. So what if Binyamin really stole this? He's just leaving it. He doesn't have to deal with it. That's the Yehuda before the moment of Tamar. It's not my problem. Yehuda in the moment of Tamar realizes that history changed because he didn't take a stand. Vayigash is not just he steps forward. It's when a human being becomes the Ish. It's when you step forward to your purpose. Look for the word Vayigash. Look for it by Avram. Look for it by Moshe. You'll see 
Every time you find that word, it's an existential turning point in the Torah. And that's what happens in this week's parasha. There are times in life when Hashem gives you a moment and you get to decide who you are. Do you step up or do you step back? And of all the moments, the ones that count the most are when that question is about whether you're really there for your fellow. Are you there for your fellow human being? Tonight is a Sarabatevit. This night, 2,000 years ago, in the year 67, if you were sitting on this rooftop, you would have seen a cloud in the distance. And it might have taken you. It might have taken you a minute. Because it looked like a cloud. But the next morning, you see the cloud's still there. It's not going anywhere. It's just bigger. Maybe it took a couple days till you realize it was the dust cloud from 10,000 Roman legionnaires. Titus brought them, actually Vespasian, up on the ridge line that you can see from our roof in the area of Harazetim, a little left. Josephus describes that Titus and Vespasian, they brought their generals and they scouted out the city of Jerusalem from that ridge line. And on that day, you would probably have realized it was no longer a question of whether it was a question of when. Right? That was when the siege began. And he describes this. Titus was a master tactician. Right? He understood the power of fear. The Roman legionnaires were barbarians. They used to put the heads of their enemies at the ends of their spears to inspire fear. And he lines them up in a perfect line and marches them down the ridge line. And as they get to the point where they're just almost out of sight, because, you know, a certain point down you can't see anymore, he splits them into two perfect Roman columns and they begin to surround the city. This was a full-day affair. And in that moment, if you're a Jew sitting in this city, right here, there were houses here of Kornim. You'd realize it's only a question of time. They went into siege for two and a half years. Two and a half years. Until finally in Shavuot they broke through the walls. And the sounds of the battering ram stopped. And the smell of the Torah ended according to the Gemara. And the Jewish people knew it was over. And we take a night... And even though Asar Batavis, the fast starts tomorrow, it really begins tonight. And we take a moment to appreciate, you know, what is the sum of, of Asar Batavit? The Gemara says, they burned the storehouses. We had enough food, enough oil, enough wood for 18 years. They could have withstood the fast. They could have withstood the siege. Sinas Chinam. They burned it so we would fight this ridiculous, ridiculous scenario. There was no ish. There was no ish. Asar Batevet is, is, is when the walls became walls. When the wall that was defending you becomes the siege that destroys you. It's when you're surrounded. It's when it appears that there's no way out. So what do you do on Asar Batevet? Asar Batevet is that moment when you realize there's always a way out. We look back now 2,000 years. Can you imagine? And I'll end with this. If you could go back 2,000 years and whisper in the ears of those Roman legionnaires that 2,000 years later we'd be learning Torah in, in, in the building that was overlooking their siege. And this would be a Jewish city and a Jewish state. And where's the Roman Empire? There's nothing left of them. They would look at you like you were mad. And here we are. Something to think about in the Sarah David. So let's uh, stop here, Pasha Vahigash. Okay? And we'll do a little... Um,